everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the summit. Is this going to wobble over? Let's hope not. Um, glad you could be with us as we're continuing our series in the book of Ephesians. We've called a survival guide. The reason we call it a survival guide is because we've said um, Paul wrote this letter. The author of this letter wrote this for it to serve as a survival guide for people who live in cities, uh, environments where it's just not natural to follow Jesus, right? We would just say that, you know, in the city of Denver, there's a lot of things that you can naturally be doing around this time slot, including watching the Broncos. Did anybody DVR it? When? Yes. Yes. That's, wow, that was pathetic. Um, okay. Yes, thank you. You're allowed to express some sort of excitement, at least over the football team. Um, and uh, There's a lot of things you can be doing around this time slot, right? And um, it's, it's pretty unlikely that you're in this room, just statistically speaking of what's going on. And so Paul, this guy, he writes this letter to serve as a survival guide of, of how is it that we follow Jesus in environments where it's very hard to follow Jesus. Now, um, we, we've talked a lot about the city here. We've talked a lot about urban living. We love the city. I, I live here in the city. And I thought um, before we go any further, it's probably important for me just to define what I mean when I say city. And so when I say city, you know, you have all sorts of complex uh, explanations. But when I say city, I just mean two things. There's density and there's diversity. Density and diversity. So you live in a city if you live around lots of different kinds of people, lots of different kinds of people. Now, here's what sociologists would say about living around lots of different kinds of people. Here's what they would say. They would say it is hard. In fact, they would actually say that it's harder to live in the city than it is to live anywhere else. And again, um, I, I was originally kind of tempted to give all sorts of uh, fancy uh, academic explanations to talk about like what part of your brain was triggered for what reason of you know, urban stresses and things like that. But here, here we'll just kind of cut right to the point. You want to know why urban living is harder than anywhere else? Because urban living means you live around a lot of people. And you know what sociologists have determined? People stress us out. Right? It's just like that simple. It's like, so, so here, you know, you can kind of like wrap your mind around the math equation here. So if people stress us out, that plus living around a lot of them equals I am stressed out a lot. And that is, you know, probably not that foreign for many of you. You know, you know, for those of you who live in and around Denver, that a lot of people um, means a lot of traffic. And so for many of you, um, you're very mild-mannered, you're very calm, you're very go with the flow. I mean, Denver kind of attracts people like that. But you get stuck in one of those never-ending construction zones on I-25 South, and, like, you transform into the Incredible Hulk, right? And you're, like, throwing things in your car. You are hitting your dashboard. You are screaming things that you don't want people to know that you are screaming. You're trying to figure out, you know, like, I know in the Fast and the Furious they drove over a ramp to get over those cars. Maybe I could do that to continue my errands. Like, you just transform into a crazy person. Or, or many of you, you know that um, lots of people means lots of sharing. For example, for me, I actually grew up in the suburbs, even more almost rural. And um, here's the interesting thing about where I grew up is that there was enough space that if you had the money, you could have one of everything. Right, like if you, if you, I don't know, for those of you who grew up in the suburbs, you've experienced this. So, like, if, if you had the money, you, you know, you could have your own swimming pool, you could have your own, uh, you know, jungle gym to play on. And um, in my neighborhood, I live right here in this neighborhood. As far as I know, there's one pool and there's one playground, and it's at the park. It's at the park, and so you have to share that with other people. And let's just be honest. I know, I know, we've all graduated from kindergarten, but sharing is hard, right? Because you know. 
like at the pool. You, you don't know what your neighbors are doing at the pool, and maybe they're drunk at the pool, and maybe they're letting their kids use the pool as a public restroom. You know, you wouldn't prefer that. Maybe your neighbors stare at your pasty white skin at the pool, which, you know, I'm not speaking from personal experience here whatsoever. And so here's the deal. Sharing is hard. And so it's pretty simple. Living in the city is hard as well. It causes lots of stress. Now, before we kind of resolve this and fix this, here's what I would say. I would say that I actually think it's good. I think the problems are good. I think they're actually good for you. I think they're good for your families. I think it's good for your family to have to share. I don't think it's healthy for you to be able to just buy whatever you want and have it on your own, not have to share it with anybody else. I think it's good for you to be raised and, uh, and to do life around a lot of different cultures and a lot of different diversity. That's what the world actually uh, looks like. I think it's good for those of you who are parents. I know some of you are parents or about to be parents. I think it's good for you to have your kids surrounded by consistently morally questionable things. Right? Like many of you, your parents, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. In other environments, you just kind of trust the culture to raise your kid to be moral. But here, you've got to like step up your game. Am I right? You've got to have a conversation. You've got to, you've got to be proactive in having that kid follow Jesus. I think that's good for you. But here's the deal. The challenges remain nevertheless. And when you live in a city, and I'm not just talking about those of you who live downtown like me. I'm talking, I mean, we have people come from as far south as Parker. We have people come from as far north as Broomfield. We have people come from Aurora. We have people come from Arvada. We have people come from all over. When you live in and around a city, the very nature of doing life around density and diversity means that you're going to experience frustrations as small as getting stuck in traffic. You're going to experience sins as egregious as racism and exploitation. And historically, in urban areas like our own, this has been the reason for all the violence, all the segregation, all of the nasty stuff that is written across our nation's history. Now, here's the question. As for those of us who do life in and around this city, how is it in the midst of the density and the diversity, we experience unity? Like, how is it that we, even as a church, write a different story with our lives in this city and where kind of history tells us there's nothing but conflict, we experience the peace and the grace of God? Well, here's the deal. What Paul's going to do is raise that question and answer it for us tonight. And what he's going to say is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ that we, dive de- uh, we, we dove deep into last week. The life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus that transforms the most unlikely of relationships to create new families, to create peace where there should be chaos. Now, if, if you look with me at the passage we just looked at, Here's what Paul's going to do, just so you can kind of understand the the thought process he's going to work through. He's going to present the problem, he's going to present a solution, and he's just going to present some action steps for us. How do we respond, okay? So the problem, the solution, and some action steps. And what Paul's going to begin by doing is just acknowledging this problem we face, the, the relational dysfunction we've all experienced. Now, last week, if you weren't with us, what we talked about was how all of us, we carry a disease inside us called Sin, And I know that has a whole lot of connotations, but the most basic way for you to understand is this disease that separates us from God. This is really important for you to understand. If you do bad things, I mean, a lot of times people think of religion as just doing bad things. That's not what really matters to us. It's not so much that you break God's rules. It's that you're rejecting the rule giver. That's why we care so much about this disease called sin. And what Paul's going to say tonight is not only does this disease called sin, does it alienate us from God, but it alienates us from other people as well. 
Sin doesn't just have a vertical dimension. It has a horizontal dimension. It alienates us from other people. Now, look what he writes, starting in verse 11, as he, deals, as he kind of acknowledges this problem. He says, verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what, uh, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, I understand this probably doesn't jump off the page as immediately relevant, but here's the deal. What, what Paul's doing on the front end is he's acknowledging that in this city, they were in the city of Ephesus, one of the leading cities of Rome, the Roman Empire at the time, that there were kind of two different types of people. Two different types of people. He calls them circumcised and uncircumcised. You may have heard it put Jewish and Gentile. And you were Jewish if you were born to the nation of Israel and followed the Old Testament law, kind of religious. You were a Gentile if you were everybody else, right? Everybody else. So the majority of you in the room would be kind of fall into the category of Gentile here. Now, here's what he's going to do. He's not just going to um, acknowledge that these two different types of people exist, but what he's also going to acknowledge is hostility exists. In fact, what you'll see in the next section of Scripture we'll read is he talks a lot about the need to kill the hostility, to kill the hostility, to kill the hostility. So he's from the very beginning. He's just kind of acknowledging the dynamic, the social dynamic that exists in the church, in the city, two different kinds of people. Conflict exists between the two. Now, it's here when we understand that's what he's doing that it starts to feel relevant. Because let's just be honest, probably none of you, none of you look at the world as like Jewish versus Gentile, but we all do divide the world in half. And a lot of times these various halves war against another. We, we do this on a global scale, right? We have first world countries and we have third world countries. We do it on a national level. We have conservatives and liberals, red states and blue states. Uh, we do this on a state level, right? You have natives. Some of you are natives and you put the, the sweet bumper sticker on the back of your Subaru that says native to remind all the non-natives, me, that you will never be a native. Thank you very much for that consistent reminder. I had nothing to do with the decision, but I would have done it differently if I could have. I love this state. So we do it on a state level. We even do this on a familial level. We, we do this in our families, right? Like, so for those of you who are married, you know, even in your marriage, you know, you've got two people, right? It would seem like you two could kind of like, we, we can be on the same team, but even you two, you divide into two different camps, two different kinds of people, and you're like, okay, well, there's people who save money, and there's people who spend money. My, my wife, there's people who run towards conflict, and there's, I wasn't talking about my wife, it was just your wife. So, <laughs> There's people who run to conflict, and there's people who run from conflict. There's people who, after they've had a long day, like to lay in front of the TV and do absolutely nothing other than watch sports and Sports Center, even if it's a rerun. And there's those who like to walk through the door, and even though they've had a crazy long day, they're looking through all the house of all the things that need to be put up and fixed and cleaned up because I can't rest until everything is put into its proper place. And even though there's only two of you in this marriage, instantly you divided into two very different kinds of people and you war with one another. And so here's the deal. We don't, we don't necessarily break down the world into Jewish and Gentile, but we do break it into something. And you do. You look at the world through this lens and you tend to think fairly harsh thoughts about the person who's at the other end of the aisle. Now, here's what I want you to do with this. Before we go any further, before we kind of try to make this better, is um, what you need to understand is not just that this problem exists, not that the human race is just naturally relationally dysfunctional because of our sin. Like, here's the deal. Even if you're here tonight and, and 
like you got dragged here or you're exploring Christianity. Like we all agree that, that the human race is naturally relationally dysfunctional, right? Like you don't have to believe Jesus to understand that. I mean, I've, I've observed this. I work a job that's very people-focused and everybody I talk to is mad at somebody else. Like, all you have to do is manage people, relate to people, hang out with people, have a family, and you can easily be upset at other people. All the time, I'm having conversations with people who are frustrated with the people that are working for them. They're, work- they're frustrated for the people they're working for, who are frustrated about relationships, friendships, marriages, with their kids. Everybody is frustrated with somebody. Everybody feels isolated. Everybody wishes somebody else would initiate more. Everybody wishes they had more friends. I have this conversation all the time, but here's the deal. Here's my observation. While everybody recognizes there's a problem, everybody simultaneously recognizes the problem is out there, right? Like, surely it's not me that has anything to do with why I experience such consistent relational frustration and disappointment again and again and again and again. Like, surely uh, I am a, a lovely person to get along with. I would make a lovely friend for somebody else. It's everybody else who's the problem. Surely it's not my fault that like, I don't have more to do on a Friday or Saturday. It's somebody else's responsibility to initiate. Surely it's not my fault that my coworkers, uh, you know, uh, or things are so, so disastrous at work. It's, it's because my coworkers are idiots. I'm the one. You know, if people just thought like me, then we wouldn't have any of these problems around here. And here's the deal is that it's easy to think that way, right? I mean, I think this way. You think this way. But you have to understand that as long as all you're aware of is the problem is out there, you will never experience any healing for this problem, right? On a global scale, on a city scale, I mean, a city full of people who always believe somebody else first needs to change will never change. And it's the same way in your family. A marriage full of a husband and wife who believe that somebody else primarily needs to change will never change. And what you and I, what we have to do is recognize not just the problem exists, not just the problem of relational dysfunction between the human race exists out there, it exists in here. Like this disease exists inside me. And I am to blame for the vast majority of the relational dysfunction I experience in the ebb and flow of my daily life. I know it's no fun to confess that you might have a disease, but we talked about this last week. It's the moment where you can finally confess a disease that you're also finally qualified for the cure. And you can finally experience healing in these areas of your life, whether they be socially, whether they be culturally, whether they be uh, marriage-wise, where you just experience the same patterns of frustration and disappointment again and again and again. So Paul wants us to understand this problem, and it's, it's our problem, right? It's not just, we're not just talking about other people. We're talking about us. I'm talking about me here. Now, he not only raises a problem, he presents a solution uh, as well. And, and look at what he presents as a solution. Look at verse 13. He says this, But now, in Christ Jesus, you, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, this is a very kind of logical progression here. What he's saying is what we hope to have happen has happened. The, divide, the hostility, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. That's what we're, that's what we're after, right? And how does it happen? He, look, he says it at the very end of verse 13, by the blood of 
Christ. So what he's saying is that as we're trying to think about, okay, here's this problem. We all identify it. We need the hostility to be killed. How is it killed? He says it's by the blood of Christ. Here's what he's saying, that the hope for relational dysfunction is the gospel, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the hope for there to bring unity where there should be chaos. Now, here's where um, Christianity becomes much more robust than you probably imagine, um, as well as beautifully practical for the world's uh, most significant problems, right? Like some of you have a very low view of what Jesus and the cross, I mean, you just have a very low view of that. Let me tell you, this is the power to beautifully change the most um, practical areas of our life. So let me just, what, what I want to do is not just um, say, you know, like Jesus fixes this and then just move on. Let's dive into this. Let's dive deep into this. So stick with me through this. I think it's just important for you to understand the, the beautiful, robust nature of the cross. So here's what you and I do. You and I, and I think this is the root of our hostility. You and I, if you're anything like me, um, God, he gives us good qualities about us we elevate them to supreme, and then we judge everybody else by those qualities, right? So, like, how is this played out in the human race? This is played out by race, right? Like, God makes us a certain race. We would say race is good. We elevate it to supreme. We judge everybody else by that race, and out pops racism. Or we do this with maybe education. We would say that uh, God gives us education. We think it's really good to learn and understand what you believe and why you believe it. God gives us education. We elevate that to supreme. We judge everybody else by those who are not as educated as us. And out pops cultural elitism, right? Um, we, we also do this. We do this by personality type as well. So um, God makes you a certain way. Uh, maybe he makes you uh, introverted. That's the way I am. I'm just kind of a natural introvert. Uh, that's good. You elevate that to supreme. You judge everybody else by who does, does or doesn't have that personality type. So like those of you who are introverted are always getting frustrated with those who are extroverted. Why are they calling me? Why are they inviting me over? Um, you know, like I just wanted to watch Netflix with my dogs. Like I did not want to. Right, so you're like, okay, that's supreme. And you judge everybody else. And hostility exists between introverts and extroverts um, as well, and, and here's the deal, is that, is that as we improperly elevate race, class, education, personality type, preferences, culture, upbringing, it breeds greater hostility. We take that which is good, we elevate it to supreme, and we judge everybody else by it. Now, here's the deal. What, what puts that way of thinking to death? Well, it's, it's the gospel, right? It's the heart of what we talked about last week. And I think a single sentence in particular, we'll bring it up on the screen. Um, Paul wrote this in a single sentence, and here's what he says. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, here's where the beauty of the gospel becomes kind of like a two-sided coin. So, so on one side of the coin is what Paul says. He says, the reason that you're loved by God is not of your own doing. That's what he says. So, so a lot of you, you, know, you probably think, um, the reason maybe I'm a Christian, the reason I would go to heaven one day, the, re- 
The reason is because I do good things. I am a good person. I am extremely tolerant. I grew up in a Christian home. I'm more moral than the people who are around me. And he says, no, it doesn't work that way. The, way. the reason God loves you is not of your own doing. There's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. And here's the thing. When you understand that, and that trickles down into the most practical areas of your life, the cross becomes then the supreme leveler. It becomes the supreme leveler. It makes me think, um, I, I grew up, playing uh, sports all the time. That's like all I did. Didn't really go to church very much, but uh, I played baseball. And I remember my favorite week of the year was the last week of February. The last week of February was when baseball season started back up. You would go onto the field, but the very first thing you would not do, uh, the very first thing you would not do is you would not take batting practice. You would not catch fly balls. You would actually have to level the field. And the reason why is because, I mean, a field, you don't have to be a farmer to understand this, has a natural propensity to grow hills and bumps and curves where it shouldn't have hills, bumps, and curves, which is really bad for baseball because, you know, you take one off that bumper curve and, you know, it hurts the old, you know, kisser here. So, so, so here's what you... <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Um, so um, <laughs> so here, here's what we would do at the beginning of the season. Um, we would, the first thing we would do is we would actually go out with a tool. I don't, I don't know what it's... it's called because you know I'm, I'm not very good at these things but it's called a uh, we called it a leveler because that's what it did and i thought that was particularly clever and so it had a giant handle um it was almost like a shovel handle and then at the very bottom it had a giant metallic base so so what you would do is the entire team we would walk the infield and you would just kind of be like looking for hills or curves or bumps where there shouldn't be hills curves or bumps you would come up on one and then you would take the leveler you take this giant metallic thing it was heavy i mean you have to come here and you just go lift it up and it would just thunk and then uh, all of a sudden, that which was hilly was now made flat. And what Paul's saying is that when we understand the grace of God in our lives and what, sell, uh, what saves us, the cross comes and levels the hills of the heart where there should not be hills of the heart. And so what happens then is if I think that because of the very nature of the rate, like, by the very nature of the color of my skin, that I'm better than other people, all of a sudden what the cross comes is it comes and thunk. And it levels that hill because it says the reason God loves me is not of my own doing, right? Like the reason God blesses me is not because of the color of my skin. It is by his blood. It is by not what I do, but by what he has done for me. Grace, by its very nature, means unmerited favor. It's not what I did. It's not something I earned. And so it's not my race that should make me feel better about other people. In the moment where I think it's my education that makes me better than other people, right? Like, you know, I, I've got an undergrad. I've got a master's degree. I've got a PhD. I've got letters before my name. I've got letters after my name. I've got more letters after my name. And other people around me are just aren't as intelligent, aren't as well put together, aren't as competent as me. In the moment where I'm starting to judge everybody else around me through that lens, naturally creating hostility, the cross comes and it thunk. It says, the reason God loves me is not because I happen to have an advanced degree. Like, God was not, you know, picking teams. Like, we pick teams in middle school, right, for dodgeball. And he's like, I need some really smart. You, like you with a PhD. How, how, how else can my mission advance without you on my team? No, like, he's God, okay? Like, he doesn't need, he doesn't need your thesis, In the moment where we start to think that, you know, maybe it's my personality type, right? Like, 
this is the way I was raised to view the world, and this is the way that other people should view the world, and here's my parenting style and philosophy, and here's the way I use my free time, and anybody who knows anything knows this is the way it's done. So as you start thinking that way, all of a sudden, the cross comes and thunk. Like, God doesn't love you more or less on the basis of the way you raise your kids. God doesn't love you more or less on the basis of the way you use your free time. And I know you can, in your heart, create why this is the only way for the universe working. But no, he doesn't love you because of that. He loves you because of not what you do, but because of what Jesus has done for you 2,000 years ago. That's the definition of grace, unmerited, unearned favor. And it levels us and makes us kind and compassionate towards the people around us. So that's one side of the coin. But the other side of the coin is the cross comes and it, and it grows something inside our hearts. If you notice the other, the other half of that verse we looked at, he says that it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. Even in verse 15, the passage that we're looking at, he even says it's by this grace he creates in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. What he's saying We've talked about this in this series. A lot of times in the city, we're striving for things to give us our identity. And what he's saying is your new identity is not all these things you do. It's what God's done for you. It is grace that identifies you now. It is his grace. He even says creates a new man. Do you see that in verse 15? He says creates a new man. In fact, the early church, when they wrote about this passage, they actually described themselves. And in spite of their cultural, generational, ethnic diversity, you know what they call themselves? They called themselves the new race that God created. He says that's our identity now. And don't you see when you finally put this in the proper perspective, it elevates something deep down inside you. Because here's the deal, is if what you primarily identify yourself off of is your race, you will naturally manifest the hostility of racism. If you primarily identify yourself by you know, what job you work, you will naturally manifest the hostility of judgment and cultural elitism. If you do primarily identify yourself by introvert or extrovert, you will wage war on those who aren't like you and don't naturally just get you. And you'll, pay, you know, you'll post things on Facebook talking about how you're so misunderstood and how if you could just understand these 20 things about me, then the world would finally be perfect. Like, no. Those things don't identify you anymore. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're identified by grace. And you know what grace multiplies? Grace multiplies more grace. Not hostility, grace. It multiplies grace in your life, and it becomes the very lens through which you look and interpret the world around you and the way you look at the people around you. And so here's the deal. You, you start then thinking about the categories of people. Yes, there are two different categories of people, but it's not black or white. It's not educated or uneducated. It's not poor or rich. It's not Republican or Democrat. It is those who have received God's grace and those who, so st- who, those who still so desperately need God's grace. And for those who have received it, those are our brothers and our sisters in Christ. That, those are our family. And we treat each other as such. We look at people like that and say, look, here's the deal. Is that you and I, we might not have everything in common. We not, may not have much in common. But we have the most important thing in common. God has changed you. God has changed me. And we call each other brother and sister now. And we treat each other as such. And we love one another in spite of the differences we might face. And for those who have not yet made that decision and aren't yet living that lifestyle, we don't pass judgment like, well, why aren't you following Jesus? Why aren't you doing the things Jesus told you? Well, 
I mean, if somebody's not made the decision to follow Jesus, I'm not really like expecting them to make the decisions that the lordship of Jesus would manifest in their life. No, instead, I understand that, look, it's nothing good in me that led to me experiencing this joy in my life. And what I pray is that God uh, humbles you and creates in you a true hunger for him so you can experience his unmerited favor in the same way I've experienced his unmerited favor. And so we pray and we speak and we listen and we love and we serve so that can just be tangibly manifested again and again and again until that person finally says, you know what? I want that. I want that. And the cross then becomes the solution. It levels the hills of our hearts that should have never been leveled in the first place. It elevates compassion inside of us And grace becomes the new lens through which we interpret the humanity that surrounds us. And unity is created where there once was chaos. And here's what Paul's going to do as he he concludes this thing. As he gives us just like, well, what do we do? That's kind of like theologically complex. So he's going to kind of just, okay, well, here's, what do you do in response? What what do we do in response? We do three things, Okay. Just three kind of simple probing questions we have to ask ourselves in response as we finish this passage. He says, one, we have to ask ourselves, have I recognized the insufficiency of my culture? Have I recognized the insufficiency of my culture? And look what, look what he writes in verse 17. He says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those of you who were near. For through him we, have bo- we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, here's what's interesting. He says there's two different types of cultures, right? There's those who are far away from God, and there are those who are near to God, but both cultures needed Jesus to come and preach to them. And here's the deal. is that for all of us, because of our upbringing, our environment, we believe for some reason, whatever reason it is, that we are naturally closer to God than the other guys. Right, like, so maybe this means then you were just raised in a Christian home. You were raised to just make good decisions. You were raised in an environment where it was just like, okay, there's a right way to live and a wrong way to live. And you haven't made a whole lot of kind of terrible mistakes. You haven't made a, an unbelievable mess of your life like the majority of us in this room. And you just look at people like me and you know my story. And you're just like, I'm just nearer to God. Okay, maybe you were raised nearer to God. But you know what he says? You still need God to come preach grace to you. You're not just like born into a Christian environment. You don't just kind of absorb it the way you do a disease. It's a decision. You're not just born into a Christian family. You're not just born into Christian morals. What he's saying, those who are near and those who are far off still need Jesus to come and preach peace. And let me ask you this question. Have you yet recognized the insufficiency of your culture. For some of you, here's what I fear. I fear that you lean on your upbringing, your parents' faith, your... You lean on your culture to save you. And he's saying it's insufficient. It's insufficient. I mean, this isn't just those of you who are maybe raised in a Christian home. This can be those of you who weren't raised in a Christian home. Right? Or maybe these are those of you who were raised in a Christian home, but at the age of eight, when you finally could get out, you got out, right? Because you're educated and you're tolerant and you're, you're enlightened and you've advanced by all that sort of stuff. And you think, well, you know, like, I'm not sure if there's a heaven or not, but if God is, does let people into heaven, he definitely lets people like me into heaven. It's like you're just leaning on your culture. You're just leaning on your upbringing. You're just leaning on your education. Everybody needs grace. Everybody. Culture is insufficient to save. But Jesus does say. So one, that's the question. Have you examined the insufficiency uh, of your culture? Two, 
am I eager to celebrate our similarities? Am I eager to celebrate our similarities? Now look, look what he says next in verse 19. So then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. I love that. He says, look, you are no longer. So if you're part of this church, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow heirs. You are fellow citizens. You are a new country. We are a counterculture. And let me ask you a question. Do you, even when you walk in this room and walk into this building and do life with the church, maybe it's even your city group, are you more eager to celebrate that similarity than you are kind of notice the differences? Because here, here's what I experience, and here's what kind of some of our other pastors experience, is almost on a weekly basis, we have somebody who's single come to us and complain about how the church is full of nothing but married people. But which is funny because on that same day, we have people who are married come to us and complain about how the church is full of nothing but single people. So I did some math, and statistically speaking, we're actually almost perfectly 50-50, which is why people are just complaining either way, right? Like you just walk in the room and you see everybody who's not like you, and it upsets you. And I think you've got a couple options with that. You're right. Like, we do have a variety of races in our church. We have a variety of cultures. We have a variety of life stages. We have a variety of experiences. And you've got two options with that. One, I mean, you can be really upset by that. And you can go, and you can even f- try to find another church, or even in this church, only hang out with the people that are exactly like you, who think like you, who look like you, who have the exact same problems as you. And, and that's an option. Plenty of people do that in the city of Denver. Or, here's, I think, the second option is you could look at a room full of people who seem to have almost nothing in common and say that this proclaims something about the greatness of the God whom we worship. That we, in spite of our preferences and life stages and backgrounds and experiences and races, can get in the same room and have the most important thing in common. Now look, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with trying to look for people that are maybe going through what you're going through, but here's the deal is do not do that at the expense of celebrating that you are a fellow citizen with the 90-year-old man who worships Jesus. Do not do that at the expense, married family, of overlooking the single, single overlooking the married, people with kids overlooking the people who have two kids, right? People who have two kids overlooking the people who have three kids. And there's, I don't think there's anybody else beyond that because we live in Denver and we love small families. But here's the deal love celebrating the similarities. It's unbelievable. Here's, here's the third. Is will I stretch myself to encourage diversity? Okay, will I stretch myself to encourage diversity? And here's, here's what Paul writes, finishing this passage in verse 21, verse 22. I think he gives us this beautiful image. To say, I mean, it's just one of those things where it's almost like you're going through the store and you're just like, I want that, right? Like you ever do that? Um, maybe your kids do that. We all do that. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We grow together with one another to be a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. It is a beautiful image that we who are willing to get on board with this are built into something so unified that we are a family, we are a nation, we are a home, a dwelling place for God. But here's the deal is if you really want to realize this, you are going to have to stretch yourself. You're going to have to stretch yourself because we all, because of our upbringing, because of our culture, because of our preferences, we, we, we run away from this. We run away from this. In fact, I was thinking about that this week. Um, you know, I feel like 
my family is kind of oddly diverse. We're in the process of adopting, um, which means once we've adopted, there'll be three people in our family, and we'll actually be three different races. We've got like the United Nations going on um, under my roof. And uh, so, my, so my child will be Asian. My wife is Hispanic, and, and I'm white, if you couldn't tell by the, the pasty white uh, skin. And so it was, uh, it was interesting. When my wife and I, we got married, um, you know, for those of you who've gotten married, you know that when you're the groom, um, you know, if this is kind of the way the room is set up, you know, you've got the double doors or whatever at the back of the room, and then, like, the groom is at the front, and you just, like, see everybody walking in, and uh, so you're just staring out, and uh, everybody came and sat, and I'm standing here. Um, I'm noticing on this side of the room, my side, it's, um, it's like, full. Like, everybody that said they were going to be there is there. And then I look at this side, my wife's side, and, like, nobody is there. I'm like, I know. I mean, I saw them last night at the rehearsal dinner. I'm not sure exactly what's going on. I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm getting married. That's all that matters. So I look out the double doors. I see the double doors open. Megan walks through. Beautiful. Oh, my gosh, beautiful. Her dad is there walking her down the aisle. <laughs> and, she, and she takes her first step. And all of a sudden, her entire family starts running right in front of her to go get to the seats because they were running late, right? So, um, so she's like, you know, false start, step back, whole family, all these Peruvians come running in, down the aisle, get in their seats, and, um, you know, it was really upsetting. Like, I, you know, afterwards, Megan and I talked a lot, and I was, like, really upset about it, and my family was really upset about it, too, and she, Megan was just like, you just have to understand, like, Hispanic people, they just have a different notion of time, and, like, things do not start exactly on time, and I was like, there's no excuses, it's their fault, uh, how could they ever be so disrespectful? It's our wedding day. And um, you know what was really funny? Like, they were actually mad at me. Um, because from their perspective, like, why would you ever start a wedding without the family there? Like, how culturally insensitive and disrespectful to start something that meaningful when the bride's family is not yet there in attendance? Isn't that interesting? But, like, from my white, middle-class, conservative upbringing, I'm looking at them, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And from their Peruvian, Spanish-speaking, Latina background, they're looking at me, and they're like, you've got to be kidding me. What do you do in a situation like that? I feel like I had one of two decisions. Um, one, you know, I could just kind of write that off as just a necessary evil of our two families coming together and it's just... So disrespectful, and if they could finally see the world from my way of seeing the world. I mean, it's not like the Bible talks about timeliness, you know. It's like they could just see it my way because it's the right way, and if God had written about that, that would have been the way he'd written about it, um, then, then they would understand it, and we don't even want to see them because it's just so disrespectful. Um, that's option one. Or option two is I could stretch myself. And maybe understand, like, my way of understanding the world is not the right way of understanding the world. Like, maybe there's just some, some room to say, like, we, if we really are going to be one family, are going to have to stretch our cultural assumptions about what is right and wrong. And it's going to be the exact same thing. It's going to be the exact same thing for us as a church if we really will be as diverse as we should be, as God calls us to be. You as a Summit family will have to stretch yourself. I'm not saying stretch your notion of morality or the most basic things the Bible teaches on, but here's the deal. Is there some cultural things about the way you want to raise your kids, about what you determine is safe or not, what you say we're entitled to, what you think is good music, what you think is good preaching, what you think is appropriate way to act, what you think is timeliness? But here's the deal. They are nothing but cultural preferences that you were raised to believe are biblical truth. And you are going to have to stretch yourself 
if you are going to realize this and be nothing but a person who is surrounded by people who look exactly like you. I think that's what God is calling us to do. We want to be a church that is diverse in every sense of that word. We are not there yet, but my heart breaks for that. It really, really does. And so here's what I just want to do as we close. All I want to do is I just want to pray. I'm just going to ask God for that. You, you can maybe while we're praying, you can just kind of examine your heart and say, okay, maybe I just said one line. We're like, okay, I need to go talk to him afterwards. We can talk about that. Um, you're going to see somebody baptized. I love, it's the favorite thing we do. Maybe that, maybe you want to get baptized. But here's what I want to do, especially for those of you who are Summit family, is that we would just ask. We would just ask God to help us be a diverse church that loves proclaiming the supremacy of who he is by the diversity of the races and the ages and the generations that are gathered under this roof, worshiping him. Okay, so let's pray. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you so much that you are so glorious that there are people literally from all over the globe today who made much of you. God, in various tribes and tongues, from cultures and backgrounds, old old great-grandparents worshipped you in this city today. God, five-year-olds worshipped you in this city today. And God, I pray that as we pursue being a people that are unified in the midst of what everybody else would say is chaos and disunity and people stress us out, the gospel and its truth and beauty would be so tangibly real that we would be a people that reflects its multifaceted beauty. God, I just pray, I just pray you would do that. It's, it's way beyond my leadership capacity, our willingness to be socially aware. It's, you've got to do it, and we ask you for it. God, let us worship you and make much of you, and we just ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.